This morning we'll be reading from the Gospel of John. Turn in your Bibles there, or the Pew Bible if you need, to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, but our focus is going to be on verse 14. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps the most famous disaster in early aviation history occurred on May 6, 1937 at Lakehurst, New Jersey. The German dirigible Hindenburg was attempting to land during a storm when it burst into flames. Of the total number of over 90 passengers and crew on board, 35 perished. The tragedy was broadcast live on the radio by Herbert Morrison, who worked for WLS Radio in Chicago. Morrison had great difficulty describing what was happening as he watched in horror the igniting of that giant balloon and its rapid collapse into a heap on the tarmac. I've heard the recording of that broadcast and the one sentence that stood out to me was when Herbert Morrison said, Oh, the humanity. Perhaps you've heard that too. You can, I think, find it on YouTube. Can't you find everything now on YouTube? Seems like it. 
And it is a, a memorable, memorable uh, audio to, to listen to. Oh, the humanity. I think there was something in his voice that communicated more than just here are some living beings that died. Humanity, real people like you and me, brought to a tragic, sudden, unexpected end in their life. You and I are destined, apart from the grace of God, to a tragic, tragic end of life if we do not know Jesus Christ. A fate much, much more significant than even this, as bad as it was. And in, in that light, I, I want us to think about what Christ did for you and me, that we will not have to face the ultimate tragic ending when our lives are over. That being, of course, the judgment of God for our sin. And so in a completely different light, and yet not totally different, I shouldn't say completely, the Apostle Paul, he, uh, the Apostle John is saying something about Jesus Christ in his humanity because it is through his humanity that you and I are able to have light and life forevermore. John declares an astounding fact here in verse 14. The eternal Son of God had come into the world as a human being. Now, you probably have heard that countless times in your mind. Of course he did. I grew up learning that. I know that. We know it, but yet do we really know it? How, much, how well do we know it? At this point in my life, I'm realizing that I'm continuing to have to let that simple but profound truth sink in deeper and deeper into my heart and into my life. John is writing here things that are relatively easy to, to understand in a sense, but in another sense, much more challenging to properly digest. Look with me at this verse, verse 14. And I want you to, to notice two specific truths that John is unfolding here. This is a part, by the way, of his prologue to his gospel. The first 18 verses are the introduction, if you will, to the gospel of John. First of all, notice that there is an astounding declaration of what God the Son did. Now, you and I, you know, we hear so much about the, the events that surround Christmas during this time of the year. And it gets all mixed up with the secularization and, and people sometimes have a hard time distinguishing, well, which one is the most important? Which one really is making a difference in my life? Is it all the trappings and the activities and the decorations and all of that? Those things are fine in themselves, of course. But as Christians, we know there's something deeper, something more important, something more profound. And that's what John is telling us here. And so there's this astounding declaration of what God the Son did. He became a human being. Jesus became 
a human being. Or as John puts it, and the word became flesh. Jesus is designated by John here as the word. Go back to verse one and John tells us that. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then if you skip down to verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh. Jesus, the word was with God, the word was God. This term word is a rather technical one, but it has the basic idea of speech or communication. Communicating reason and reality. That word logos is what is behind that word. Jesus, says John, is God communicating to man in the ultimate way, directly and in person. We've had struggles the last few years because of COVID mostly in communicating directly and in person, haven't we? Some of us have trouble communicating with certain people all the time, (laughs) directly and in person. If you're in the military and you're overseas, it's great to have FaceTime. It's great to be able to call and, and text and all of that. But there's nothing like being able to be there in person. That's why I love it. And you probably do, too, when you see these video clips of Soldiers coming home and surprising their spouse or their children, their parents, whoever it is, that they're there. I saw one yesterday, uh, one of the football games, where the soldier not only showed up in the end zone and his wife ran up to greet him, but then he got down. Well, it wasn't his wife yet. He got down on his knee and proposed to her. Right there in the end zone. And I think it was like 15 degree weather or something like that. And yes, she accepted. Nothing like it. Nothing like being in person. There was nothing that you and I needed more than for our Savior to be one of us. Not just the Son of God in heaven, but also fully man here on earth. We need to be careful here because... As I mentioned at the beginning today, there are always teachers who are saying aberrant things about the nature of Christ. And so we have to look very carefully and make sure we understand what the scriptures do tell us. And John is doing that right here. Jesus, the word, did not stop being God when he became a human being. He always has been and always will be the eternal son of God, as we acknowledged in the Nicene Creed this morning. John is telling us that the son of God became a man in addition to being fully divine. We remember the birth of Christ, especially at this time of the year. And so as we look at what John tells us, we see this is a unique statement. John doesn't talk about the birth of Christ like Matthew and Luke did in their Gospels. They give us the the actual details of of what went on. But John here is sort of like the theologian in residence. 
he explains the deeper aspect of what the significance was of Jesus being born in that manger as the son of Mary and Joseph. As we read the gospel accounts, we know that he was a real human being because he experienced the common marks of all people from birth to death. He grew up from childhood. He ate, he drank, he suffered, he slept. And he experienced the full range of human emotions and temptations. The major difference was, of course, that Jesus never yielded to those temptations. He never sinned. So he became a human being, and then, John says, he lived in the midst of those other human beings in his world. He dwelt among us, says John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As one of the many eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, John could say that Jesus made his home in the presence of the people of Judea and Galilee. We might put it this way. Jesus, yeah, he was one of our neighbors. When John says Jesus dwelt among them, he literally was saying that Jesus tabernacled among them. A tabernacle was a tent a temporary place to live. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, of course, was, was uh, commanded by the Lord to be built as a place where God himself would come and his glory would be manifested there. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in there and the people through the priests would bring their offerings and that's where they would worship God because that's where God was concentrated the people of God constructed that portable house for God to dwell in. And of course, later the temple itself became more or less permanent for the dwelling place of God until the greatest tabernacle of all came, Jesus himself. Jesus is our tabernacle now because God dwells fully in him because he's fully God. And he dwells in his people when they put their faith in Christ. We don't think about that too often. But Jesus is with us and within us. Paul said in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God bodily. But Jesus' spirit was sent by both the Father and the Son. Again, we said that a while ago in the Creed. Most of us are familiar with what John says here, of course, in this part of verse 14. But we do need to remember the significance, the tremendous significance of what is being said here. Sometimes just a few words can say much, much more than we realize. If somebody says to you, when you see them after the holidays, you hadn't seen them in a while, and they say, my house burned down. Well, that's a very simple sentence. But there sure is a whole lot behind that, isn't there? Your house burned down. Lost everything. Starting all over. I mean, this, it goes on and on. And it takes a long time to 
recover from that. And John is saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Remember how Paul outlined what Jesus actually did in Philippians chapter 2? Let me read that again, verses 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In a sense, that's another proof of Jesus' real humanity. He died. He died and was buried. All of that's important. God became man and entered into the most significant mission trip ever undertaken. The Son of God willingly took on the humbling, ultimately humbling task of leaving heaven and entering the fallen world as a fetus, then a newborn baby, then a boy, then a man. That in itself is amazing enough. But the reason did Jesus did this, it wasn't for himself. It was a rescue mission to save lost sinners like you and me. What an astounding declaration. And if you'll look a little further in the verse, you see the other part of it. John makes an astonishing witness to what God the Son did. He declares what Jesus did, and then he says, I'm a witness to that. He was seen. This wasn't somebody's idea of, I'm going to invent this story and tell people that this is what this guy named Jesus did. John said, no, 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 there are eyewitnesses, and I was one of them. You notice how he put it? We have seen his glory. Not just John, not just somebody else, the group collectively. All of those who were living in the area where Jesus lived, including the initial 12 disciples, John was one of them. Beyond that, the, the other disciples that would come to believe in him, and beyond them, others who scoffed at him and rejected him, but they all saw him. And even after his resurrection, Paul says over 500 people saw him. Lots and lots of witnesses. We have seen his glory. This is important not only because it affirms that Jesus is a historical figure as opposed to a myth, for example, but also because it proves he was a true human being as opposed to a phantom, a spiritual being, but with no real human body. That was not Jesus. 20th century painter, a Spanish painter, Salvador Dali, painted a picture called The Crucifixion. And it has Jesus hanging on the cross, sort of. Sort of. 
He's not actually on the cross. He's actually three feet away from the cross, suspended in the air. And then he has a painting called The Last Supper in which Christ is seated with the disciples, but he is transparent. I see through Jesus. Those are not depictions of reality. But that's what Salvador Dali wanted to communicate. He was not a Orthodox Christian, needless to say. And so we know better than that because we have the records of those who were actually there, like John. The Jesus that is portrayed in the gospel accounts is the Jesus that truly existed. And those accounts are accurate. The question for us is, what will we do with this factual record concerning Jesus? We either accept it and apply it to our lives as the gospel message calls us to do, or we reject it and we must be prepared for the consequences if we do reject it. He was seen. And John even goes a step further there and says he was seen for who he truly was. We have seen, look at what he says, we have seen his glory. I mentioned the term tabernacle a minute ago and Israel was able to see the glory of God enter and reside in that tabernacle and temple later in the form of God's cloud, the cloud of God's presence. God's glory is his essence. God's glory is his nature, his, his character. It's, the word glory literally means weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. Weight gives you the idea of substance, of reality. And that's what God's glory is. It's the essence of who he is. I don't want to, it's easy to get uh, irreverent here, but it's the stuff of, of what God is. The reality of God's nature, his glory, his greatness, his holiness. Remember Moses asked God to show him his glory in Exodus in chapter 34, and God granted that request. Okay, I will show you my glory, but of course it had to be in a very limited setting. As God passed by Moses, Moses was hiding sort of in a, in a cleft of a rock. God passed by Moses and the essence of God's nature was proclaimed as he went by. Remember how it, it describes God there. John says, we saw God's glory. We saw God's glory in the form of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, we must not misunderstand what God's glory in Jesus would have been like. Sometimes I think we get a little off base with some of our Christmas hymns. I love singing the Christmas hymns because the good ones are just chock full of good theology like the ones we are singing today. But we sang one last night that caused me to wonder about it. 
radiant beams from thy holy face. I don't know that baby Jesus had radiant beams emanating from his holy face. I'm not saying he did or didn't. I don't know. A little skeptical. Because Jesus was fully human. And that one of the hymns that we sing, we're going to sing it in a, in a couple of minutes, says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus came veiled in flesh. His glory was concealed to a large degree. Yes, it came out at times, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Overwhelming Peter, James, and John. Peter, of course, had to say something. He always does, good or bad. And he says, oh, oh, let's build some tabernacles up here. Let's put some tents up. This, you know, let's stay here a while. This is great. You know, Moses and Elijah. And, wow. God's glory was, was there at times when he did his miracles. But if you just saw him walking along, I don't know that you would have thought anything different about him. Isaiah 53 tells us, you know, that he was really ordinary in a lot of ways. He was one of us. So we have to understand that aspect of it. That's why only those who believed in Jesus, who truly believed in Jesus, could see him for who he really was. Because it takes the eyes of faith to realize this man that John is telling me about is the son of God and the savior of sinners. There's no man that's ever lived like this man. We needed someone like that to be our savior. And that's who God gave us in Jesus. Jesus did not walk around with some holy aura or glow about him. John says the glory of Jesus was due to his being the only son of the father and that he was full of grace and truth. There's the glory. The glory of God seen in human form, the one person who ever lived on this planet was brimming over with grace and truth. And he did it in all humility. You would think maybe that if it's going to, Jesus is going to show us his glory, it's, you know, we're all going to just fall by the wayside every time we see him because he's so brilliantly holy and we cannot be around him. We couldn't be around him if he were in heaven because he would be perfect up there and God was there, the Father, the Spirit, all of that, nothing but perfection in heaven. Heaven doesn't allow any sin in it. And it doesn't allow any sinners in it unless those sinners' sins have been dealt with by Christ. And so there was that limitation. But the way to see Jesus' glory was in his humility. That's what Paul was saying in Philippians 2. Philippians 2. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. He willingly, 
took on this lowly, as lowly as you can conceive, form of life from the greatest of glory in heaven to the lowest of humility on earth. The most radical transformation. And that was all necessary for you and for me. And he's full of grace and truth. John uses both of these terms, grace and truth, a lot in his gospel. In fact, he uses the word truth some 35 times in these 21 chapters. Those are two of the key emphases in this gospel. He's full of grace and truth. What is grace? What is truth? We need to understand and experience both of these in our lives. If you look a little further down from where we read today, just to, to uh, explain that a little more, verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Think about what grace is. We need the grace of God because we are sinners and we have no claim on God's forgiveness and we have no right to heaven. And yet God will pardon us and secure a place for us in heaven because of what Christ did on the cross while he was here in this world. His whole life was a life of obedience perfectly because our life was filled with disobedience. And we needed a perfect substitute to pay for the penalty our sins deserve. And only Jesus was qualified to do that. Jesus came and embodied grace. Grace is God treating us the exact opposite of what we deserve. The chaplain to the Queen of England one time explained grace as an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, that's one way to look at it. God's riches at Christ's expense. We read 2 Corinthians 8, 9 a while ago, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich, spiritually rich, eternally rich. And what about truth? We need the truth of God because we are liars by nature and we live in a world full of liars by nature. And God comes and does not deceive us. He does not uh, tell us anything that is false. Jesus came into this world and he spoke the truth. Some people didn't like that. The truth hurts when we hear the truth of God about our sin and our guilt and our need for a savior. But in the midst of that truth is also a wonderful truth. There is a savior for sinners and that savior is Jesus. Let me make two applications very quickly. One is that we should never stop being awestruck at the incredible journey of Jesus that John declares in this verse, and the word became flesh. It should lead us to 
constant worship and praise. Jesus, you left heaven, heaven's glory for earth's depravity to save me from my sin. And so we should be forever grateful and we should become more and more enthralled by the reality of what that really is telling us. Keith and Kristen Getty wrote a song that is not nearly as popular as some of their other ones like In Christ Alone, songs that we sing. But they have one in one of their books uh, of songs called Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. Isn't that a great statement? Lord, don't let me lose my wonder at what you've done for me, at what the Christmas message is all about. We sing another one, come behold the wondrous mystery of the dawning of the king. Come behold, behold, think about the wondrous mystery of Christ's incarnation for us. And the second application is that we need to reflect Jesus' incarnation in our own lives. Because Jesus came to be a servant. He said himself, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And he demonstrated that, didn't he, with the washing of the disciples' feet and, and all the things that he did, really. He came to serve. And so you and I, as we follow Christ and seek to glorify him, that needs to be our attitude towards others. Lord, you put me here not to be served, but to serve. How can I serve, humbly serve others? Seeing them in their need, maybe just if it's just for a prayer, praying for them or giving them an encouraging word from scripture or from your own wisdom that God's given you or experience, whatever it is, bringing food to them in need, helping those who are poor and destitute, those who are, are, are having real problems in life that, that need encouragement and help. We are called to serve. And not only just serve one another within the body, but serve our neighbors wherever we might be in contact with them in God's providence. Stoop low. Stoop low to serve those in need of God's grace and truth. And as we do that, as we make those applications, the Lord will be glorified because we are really getting it when it comes to what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us where we fail to grasp sufficiently the significance of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us for our sakes. Lord, we're so grateful that Jesus has done what he has done to secure our eternal salvation. And on this day, when we think about gifts, we remember the greatest gift of all, that you gave your only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but instead will have everlasting life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.